0: Hello and welcome to Scopy Radio. My name is Daleon Johansson,
1: and I'm Maureen Smith. And today we are joined by Koya Paz.
0: <laughs> how are you today? I'm oh, well. Hello.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. So I want to first preface by saying um, how much of just like a like a shining beacon of patience and. <laughs> And uh, willingness to put content out in this time because this is our, so we've done a couple sounding boards, which is like our talking talk show of just me and Maureen, but this is our first interview well, since the pandemic started.
1: Well, and when we did record one of our, one of the other podcasts that we produce over Discord yeah. once, but this is our first two people on one side, another one person on the other side interview, and mm-hmm. so it's... It's an exciting... Well, I
2: feel I feel so honored to be your guinea pig. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, so I was yeah, because I was definitely hesitant at first, just because I I come from audio engineering, um, mm-hmm. and the the we've had multiple times where people have been like, oh, can I call in? Can I do this, that, or the other? And it's just always so tricky, you know. But I'm honestly like, I want to pl- shout out Discord. Like, I really enjoy the the um. The way that the voice chat works and everything, a lot of it seems really intuitive. Um, but anyway, um, so I'm really glad that we get to, well, not sit down with you, but sit down
1: and talk digitally to you. with
0: you and talk with you. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. I was first. I mean, obviously, you've been working in Chicago for a while, but I was first introduced to you through the um, the spreadsheet that you did on just how the <laughs> Chicago Tribune covers theater in chicago and i think that that's something that a lot of folks in the city are finally starting to realize is just how conservative that that publication is and how uh like like basically like it's how reductive it is um and and then you know kind of knowing more like we've we've covered free street in the past i didn't i hadn't even put that two and two together of just kind of how much you've done locally um and you also teach it to paul so it's like there's just like so much that you do um but i'm kind of curious you know especially for our audience like how do you think of yourself as a creative like how do you best uh, how do you best introduce yourself to, to folks that maybe wouldn't know about your work
2: Yeah, it's funny because I never have a good elevator speech, so I think there are a lot of people who are really shocked to find out about, like, 10 other things that I do because they only know me from doing one thing, or, um, you know, I think that a lot of what I'm interested in is a radical transformation of the arts in Chicago, and I know that that sounds really like an ambitious goal, um, but I just think that stories matter I've believed that um, from the very beginning of my artistic career and I also have known for since the very beginning of my artistic career that not everybody has an opportunity to tell their stories on a platform that reaches the broader city or a platform that is funded in any way or a platform that is acknowledged in any kind of mainstream institution whether that's a press or a funder or um, a building, you know, a theater or museum. And so I have really, I think that there are ways to solve a problem by, you know, focusing in one direction. I'm just gonna do this one thing. I've chosen to think about the ecology that theater, I mean, that's the art form that I'm interested in, the The ecology that theater is circulating in. So, You know, how can I, as an artist, tell better stories? How can I, as an arts administrator, I'm the longtime artistic director at Free Street. um, How can I facilitate storytelling, theater across the city? How can I be an advocate to funders? And um, in my role as a teacher at DePaul, I think all the time about, like, these are brilliant students at a top conservatory they are going, they are the future of our field. So how can we start having conversations about equity literally in the very first class they ever take in college? Mm -hmm. So I've really tried to approach my work in terms of working for equity from a lot of different angles.
0: Yeah, and so I want to also to take a step back for context. Would you also mind uh, kind of uh, introducing what Free Street is for folks that may not know?
2: Oh, yeah. My favorite topic. Mm -hmm. Um, So Free Street is we are in our 51st year of making theater by, for, about, with, and in Chicago's diverse community. So I'll I'll unpack that long list Mm -hmm. of words right there, which is that when Free Street started, Free Street makes all original ensemble based work or co-created work. And when Free Street started in 1969, it was the first racially integrated theater company with professional actors who were black and who were white. It was started as a response to a series of riots that had torn the city apart in 1968. And it really was people going into communities across the city, I say doing free Street Theater. It wasn't a very imaginative name, um, but that was really radical at the time. And over the years, Free Street did things like everybody moved into Cabrini Green and started making work there. Free Street started one of the first first youth theater programs in Chicago. Free Street has always been about thinking about how can we use theater to serve people who aren't being served by the arts and to bring people into conversation when they wouldn't maybe naturally come into conversation with each other because of Chicago's racial and economic segregation. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many of your listeners are listening from outside of Chicago, but I always think it's important to say that Chicago is the most segregated city in the country by every measure of segregation that there is. And so... When I became the artistic director at Free Street in 2012, 2013, it's never really clear to me. We just sort of, like Free Street is a very, um, we are very process-oriented, and, um, but we don't always say, like, okay, now it starts. You know, it just sort of has happened. Um, I was really interested in sort of how we continued to push for radical theater-making, Um, And by radical, I think it's really important to say that, like, for me, that means a radical invitation, that you're making work that truly welcomes lots of different perspectives and lots of different ways of being at the theater. So the thing I'm really not interested in is, like, come in, sit down, be quiet, let me put on a show for you. (laughs) I think that for a lot of people, that's not actually that fun. We joke a lot that we're theater for people who hate theater, so everything that you think you hate about theater, um, the chances are we don't do that at all, um, or that you could disrupt it as an audience member. Um, So we have an aesthetic that's really important to us, but we also have a politics, and we're absolutely committed to thinking about theater as an economy. And that we believe artists should get paid. We pay all of our artists. Currently, we have a commitment to paying everybody that works with us at least minimum wage. And before the pandemic hit, we were working on getting that up to at least $15 per hour. Um, And I think we probably still will. I, I think that might mean we do fewer projects so that we can pay people better on each project but I guess that's a problem for next year's budget I can really get in the weeds I love talking about money um and how to redistribute it
1: that is so I think that that is I think that that is an approach that so few art makers are willing to take I think that paint like stipend is the first line item that gets gutted and because I think that Vision can oftentimes overshadow reality when it comes to what people are able to do. And so to prioritize, like, even if it means making less, being able to treat your people better is like such a fantastic, like that is, that is how it should be framed because ultimately those fewer projects are going to end up being high quality because the people working with you are going to be so much better taken care of mm-hmm.
2: yeah I think this idea that like we're just gonna like squeeze people dry in the name of creating something it seems like counterintuitive to being a creator
0: mm-hmm. yeah and I think that for some reason there is a myth that because um, I think scaling back but like focusing your resources and and making your resources count in a way there's a myth that for some reason that that will stray away from the mission of, of your entity? Like, I don't, does that something that you've, that you've, uh, I guess, like encountered or like worried about, like, or, or is it just, you just know that the, with the work that you're doing, that it's going to be uh, as part, like part of your mission.
2: Yeah. I mean, I actually think the economics might be the most important part of our mission. Mm-hmm. So if we're, you know, part of what free street does is that, we work all over the city and we work with communities all over the city. And we ha- our commitment is to spend 80% of all of our project dollars in the community where we're working. And the reason it's 80% and not 100% is just like any organization, we have some overhead right. that we couldn't say like, that goes in that zip code. <laughs> you know, It's just like our insurance payment is our insurance payment. Um, our staff is our staff. So we do hire staff who live in the communities where we work. But one of the things that happens a lot with more traditional, quote unquote, outreach programs is that all of the money gets centralized around the institution and it doesn't circulate in the communities where people are working. And so, you know, if you think about the arts being important, yes, because stories matter. But the arts are also important because when people go see a show, whether it's a play or a concert or a gallery opening, they often usually spend money near where they go to do it. Um, and it costs money to put that stuff on. You have to buy materials. You have to buy food. You have to. There's so many ways in which we spend money to make art. And so Free Street is committed to spending that money where we're working, that the little bit of dollars we have, we need to pay for things we where we are for that work to matter. And we also need to treat the arts like a job. We can't ask people who are working class um, or living you know, kind of at the economic margins of society to just come tell a story and make art because that's fun. Um, it should be fun and it should be life-affirming, but it should also be paid. And so that's just really important to us, too, that we want to honor people's expertise and we want to honor people's time. We also offer child care at rehearsals as needed. We offer co-programming at shows. Um, we offer transportation stipends, food at rehearsals. Like, we've really tried to think about what are the economic barriers that keep people from working as theater artists. And also, what are the economic barriers to being an audience member? All of our shows are free or pay what you can. And that's stuff we've thought about a lot. And believe me, there are days when I'm like, well, we're just going to have to start charging admission. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I'm like slapping myself in the face. Like, no, that like our mission is to make the arts accessible. And so we just have to become increasingly creative about how we pay for that who we're paying for that and like what our economic model is um, but I we don't believe in scarcity mm-hmm. you know I, I think we believe that resources are tight um, but they always have been for work like ours you know I think that work made by people of color work that is experimental in any way work that's trying to exist outside of large institutions is always having to kind of reimagine how it works and I think that's the great beauty of it you know like We're in this moment where our sector is kind of crumbling because we can't gather in live space. Um, But the people to me who have had the most imaginative answers really quickly are people who are already kind of working in a marginalized way or who had already decided, you know what, that institutional bureaucratic way of making art is, I'm not about it. (laughs) Like I've been working in a different way always. So it's really easy for me to pivot to a different kind of work and Um, I think I just live with a lot of hope for our imaginations as artists that it's not just what we make but how we make it.
1: I know that before all of this happened like the the spreadsheet that Daniel was talking about of like lack of lack of equity in terms of theater and arts coverage in the city. um, Before all of this happened it's like, it had to do with the treatment of, like, live in-person performances and and working within that existing model. How do you think that this pandemic will change the landscape of how theater is talked about in Chicago?
2: Well, I, you know, I, I hate to put the trim in my crosshairs constantly, oh, we you do, know, we and...
1: Do
2: it too. So <laughs> I, I think it, in some ways, they're the easy target. Well, this suddenly got so violent, you know, like crosshairs <laughs> and targets. Um, we're just talking about words. Um, but um, because they're the largest one, you know, I and I think that one of the things I've been doing for a long time, and I'll get to your question, but I feel like I should explain the mm-hmm. spreadsheet, is that I've just been, you know, uh, f- not feeling, I've known for a long time that, um, where where reviewers are covering the arts is highly concentrated along the northeast corridor of the city where the whitest and wealthiest people of the city live. And, you know, I want to say it's not just reviews. It, there's a, a, a self-perpetuating cycle in there where that's also where the funding goes. That's also where the majority of the institutions are housed. So, you know, like, it's sort of like chicken or the egg, how you start to unpack um, who we've invested in and which communities we've decided will be arts hubs. But, you know, one of the things that happens, I think, is that um, large institutions or Main Street institutions sometimes try to gaslight us when we say, hey, you're not really like covering my community, you know, and like, it's somehow like, um, oh, you're just mad because you didn't get a review or... Well, you know, like, and I, I tried, because I'm a researcher, um, I have a PhD in performance studies. I'm very data-driven. I just started keeping track of um, not just where, sort of geographically, where reviews were happening, um, but also just content, you know, like how often are we reviewing work by white writers versus writers of color, just stuff like that, you know, like who's getting funding. There's some really great heat maps actually on where funding circulates. Mm -hmm. And I always read, I read those for fun, but also (laughs) it's my job. And so I published an op-ed about, you know, everybody was talking about how the Oscars are so white. And I'm like, actually all accolades are so white, you know, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. this is the case big and small. And here's why I think that matters. And I published it in the reader and um, I talked about the TRIB was the um, publication I named, mostly because it's the largest one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that anyone reading outside of Chicago would recognize it. And then um, the head critic, at, <laughs> TRIB, Chris Jones, um, he's now Voldemort, so I'll say his name. <laughs> and he... Um, he got really mad, and he basically started uh, saying in comments that oh, I was just a disgruntled artist, and I was making this up, and I was mad because I didn't he didn't review my work. And I'm like, no, I'm speaking as a researcher who's you know been compiling this data for years. So what I did was um, pull my data about the trib specifically. I actually have that information about all arts venues or like reviewing venues in Chicago. But I pulled the petty part of me pulled just the trip <laughs> because I was responding to Chris, you know, of saying like, I'm not a disgruntled artist. like here is data it's and I'm making a geographic argument mm-hmm. um, and you could see that like sometimes like the like you'd have three reviews in a row and they're all coming. Not just from the same neighborhood, but from the same literal building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, you're not traveling very far. And I do think that it's a little more complicated than just like you're making a choice to go there or not go there. Um, some of because there's been so little institutional and funding investment on the south and west side of the city, um, a lot of the arts and performance happening in those cities might be described as informal. And I want to say, like, that's really subjective, but they might not be happening in formal theaters um, because there aren't necessarily formal theaters to do it in. But that doesn't mean people aren't doing cool and exciting work. And so I think that part of if we're going to have better arts coverage in the city, we need to have a more expansive sense of, like, what it means to say something is theater or what is a theater or, like, what we
1: assign value to
2: in terms of being an artistic product.
1: So in this case when when we're talking about like equity in theater outlets obtaining funding, does the label experimental help or hurt?
2: Does the label experimental help? Like,
1: so I I guess oh. like in in the in the seeking of funding and the conversation around funding like, does being, like, labeled as experimental, does that, like, is that a... Oh, I know what I'm trying to say, but I'm having trouble verbalizing it. Well, I,
0: th- I think it's interesting to kind of, like, contextualize the, you know, the way that you spoke on um, the subjective nature of, like, calling a space informal. Whereas, like, yeah. the, you know, I, I we come from opera, um, originally and so we're very familiar with the way that like elitist art forms behave and it seems like right. in in one breath an elitist art outlet will say you know we need new work we need experimental work but it but in the other it's like they're not there's the, there's a, just an like an unwillingness to actually interact with the work that is experimental that is pushing boundaries because of subjective cultural like implications basically and so Maybe i guess just, it, yeah sorry go ahead
2: some of it has to do with i think they want to have ownership or like mm-hmm. they want uh, this goes back to the process versus product question you know like they want new stories they don't want new ways of making them, you know. Mm-hmm. They don't want to feel excised from the control over them. You know, I think experimental to me is always a question of like what we mean by that. And um, I I tend to think about experimental as truly being an experiment. You know, you're trying something, you don't know if it will work. You're interested in finding out if it will have a certain outcome. You think it might, it might not, you know, like it's a way of working. Um, it's a little bit different to me to think about, like when I think about informal spaces, to think about how often people are presenting performance in their homes or on their stoops or, you know, like that or in churches or parks, you know, like that people are just grabbing the spaces where they think they can get people together in order to put on a show. Um, and sometimes that show doesn't look... You know, like, I think the word experimental sometimes assumes a kind of like art house quality to it or, you know, like art school quality to it. And sometimes I think the work that's happening, um, you know, like in someone's backyard or on their porch might feel pretty, um, not experimental in the sense that it's a pretty straightforward scene or pretty recognizable story, um. But it is the invitation is very different and the audience it's trying to attract is not the same audience that would go to like Steppenwolf, you know, mm-hmm. and so this is where I think like being really precise in our language um, is important. At the same time at Free Street, like, I don't know that we would ever put on like a two act play you know, realism with an intermission. We have zero interest in that, you know. (laughs) But if you want to, like, make a puppet play about, like, you know, indigenous futurism Mm. and it's all going to be, you know, Mm. like, um, performed on top of a giant balloon, I'd be like, yeah, but can we do it on the south side? (laughs) You know, like, who are you hiring? You know, like, um, you know, like, I think we do need um, to be, we don't need legitimacy in terms of form or institution for our work to matter. You know, I think we have to make work that that works for the people that we want it to serve.
0: Right. Yeah. I think that to like, to Maureen's question, like, I think that the idea of um, how uh, extra, that's the wrong word. Like extracurricular is the wrong word, but like work outside of the perceived norms, like, the yeah. thing that is interesting to me like is just the root how definition do they,
1: of extraordinary
0: right like how do they what is the like what is the value to engaging with a chicago tribune for example where they are the for chicago the you know the pedestal whatever for yeah. better or for worse like is you know cuz especially when what that looked like on paper if you're looking at what engaging with the Tribune looks like. Like, for, like, there's, if you're looking at the nuts and bolts of it, like, there's a, a case to be made for Free Street to do that. But then when it actually comes to practically what it looks like, where it looks like, you know, you writing what you did and then getting the response that you did from Chris Jones, it's like, you know, how, how is it worth it, I guess?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, in some sense, yeah, because it, I think the fact that I was beefing put it drew a lot of attention. Where if I had just like released a spreadsheet with a lot of numbers, people mm-hmm. would be like, "Oh, that's nice," but what do I care? Like, mm-hmm. there's no story and there's no drama, you know. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. fact that I released that as a response, you know. Right. Um, then people are like what you know yeah. <laughs> like um and that's not really what i did you know it's sort of a two thing i i was so angry and i can't tell you how many really angry comments and posts i started to write mm-hmm. and then withdrew because i was like what's productive like what's useful i actually really am committed to um kindness which is not the same as niceness you know but like I really value being fair above almost everything and it's no surprise that my other commitment is to equity you know mm-hmm. like I want things to be fair and equitable and I'm so distressed when they're not um and I certainly hate to be um the perpetrator of things being unequitable you know I'm sure I am often but I'm I'm very interested in being welcomed into conversations about that. So I was really like, what would be productive now? And the most important thing is like, I'm just not going to let somebody tell me I'm wrong about something that is so, so basic. Tell me that you don't know how to address that problem. Sure. Tell me that you're understaffed. Sure. Tell me that you're not comfortable going to Englewood to, you know, see a show on somebody's porch, not just because you don't know if culturally you feel comfortable, but also you don't know if you are qualified to evaluate that work. Like, Mm -hmm. let's just have a more honest conversation about what's happening, but don't tell me that I'm wrong or I'm bitter, Mm -hmm. you know, like actually Chris Jones is the last person I would want to come in and give his opinion about my work. He's welcome to. Anything that's public, be my guest. But, like, I felt this way, like, it started... So before I was at Free Street, I spent nine years as the co-artistic director at Teatro Luna, which is a Latina theater company. And, like, we were pretty popular with the mainstream press And that, you know, the timeout, the reader... Um, the Tribune, all of the places that were reviewing at the time that we were making work or that I was there making work. They had Runa still making beautiful work, but they moved to L.A. Um, you know, they loved us. They always came um, and reviewed us. And we usually got good reviews, but they were really complicated, good reviews. Like the number of times we got referred to as spicy oh. was like oh. innumerable or feisty or like... Hmm. It seems like I've heard this story before, and I'm like, um, I promise you, you have not. This Mm -hmm. is a show about, like, these are all autobiographical shows, uh, really specifically about Latinas living right now. Like, if you think that Real Women Have Curves or A, My Name is Alice is the same as what we're making here, you have a really, really short view on like the world of Latina performance, you know? And like, Mm -hmm. that was my first encounter with Chris Jones actually was like 20 years ago, comparing a show we did about the US census and how there is no category to check yourself as like Latina, um, to A, my name is Alice. (laughs) I was Mm -hmm. like, what? Yes, okay, there's some monologues. (laughs) It's written by women. But beyond that, (laughs) it's like not the same. And after that, I was just like, I really truly, I mean, this. In my deepest, like most honest part of my heart, think that you know most of the professional critics um, who are kind of carries carried over from a time when we didn't really care about equity or like racial diversity mm-hmm. in the arts, um, are not qualified to evaluate the work we're doing at Free Street or doing at, you know, Teatro una or doing at any number of like really awesome theaters run mostly by people of color. Because they haven't spent the time getting to learn a worldview or a world framework that would make that kind of story, tell- both the mode and the content, legible to them. Yeah, But um, it just got really academic. No, I was <laughs> literally just
0: going to say, yeah. I lo- what I love about the way that you approach the work and the way that you think about this is it is such an academic mindset. And what I find so, maybe ironic is the wrong word, but what I find so weird is just how these institutions that we've at this point there's like a myth that these, I mean, I don't know if it's a myth or not, but cause like, obviously there are reporters doing fantastic work and, and even academic work in many of these institutions. But when it comes to the arts, there is, I, I don't know. I, I'm starting to feel there's this a serious lack of like what it means to actually be academic in the way that we cover the arts institutionally, because it's, it's at this point, it's just like fodder, you know, like I, I've, <laughs> to better understand like traditional journalism recently got like a, a New York times subscription and I've just been like <laughs> reading the arts and culture section just like, where the fuck are we with this? And it's just like, yeah. it's so uh, like boilerplate, you know? And, and I, I, yeah, I guess just like, why do you, what do you think about this idea of the difference between institutional journalism, especially in the arts, and, and actually what it means to do academic, you know, historical, historically contextualized uh, research and, and thought on, on the arts.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, it, you know, it's funny because I was just reading, you know, way back, a question I promised to answer and I didn't, was about, <laughs> like, how would we respond to, like, the current moment where we're all going digital for a while. And I was thinking about how um, Sherry Flanders, who is a a comedian and a critic for The Reader and Mm -hmm. sometimes The Sun-Times, was um, complaining about the coverage of the Second City show in the Tribune. Mm -hmm. And just like she was saying, uh, what we need right now are not critics, we need witnesses. And I, I thought that was such an apt way to put it, like super smart. And I think actually what we always need are witnesses and people who can help us contextualize. And um, I think that I really appreciate um, journalism that's well-researched, you know, and I think that part of what happens in the arts is that it's hard, you know, we have a right to our subjective response as audience members to a piece of art. Mm -hmm. But what we're not always good at doing is placing our own subjective response, like how we felt and thought about it, in the context of who we are, Um, you know? Like there's not, my dad is an anthropologist and like he gets so mad, he he's always complaining about postmodern ethnography, you know, (laughs) where like the anthropologist now always has to situate themselves and talk about who they are. And I'm like, That is the most important thing anybody writing about another person can do is understand themselves first, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, (laughs) like understand the ways in which you might be biased or help the reader understand where you're coming from when you offer a point of view. I mean, I think all of that really matters. But I also just think like the problem too is like we don't have a lot of people doing that from lots of different points of view. Mm -hmm. Like I actually think like, for the TRIB, probably a lot of those readers would hate, hate, hate a lot of the work that I recommend, you know, Um, because it's not what they want to see. So knowing who you're speaking to is important, but don't pretend that you're speaking with a voice of authority. Mm -hmm. You're speaking with a subjective voice for particular people. The New York Times is funny. I think it tends to be a little more thoughtful Mm -hmm. than um, the TRIB, certainly, (laughs) you know, but it is like, I often clip um, articles and essays from the New York times just because I find them so ludicrous mm-hmm. in terms of like how they're describing something. <laughs> it's just like what planet do you live on? It's like people are dying out here, you know, and not that all of our art has to be like, um, you know, you know, it just sometimes feels so out of touch mm-hmm. with like, or, or it feels like, um, it's trying to make cool something that is everyday survival. And you know, I think about like sometimes we'll write about like um, suddenly like something very working class or very like hood or like whatever word you want to use to describe something that has mostly belonged to a working class community of color, suddenly becomes cool for like um, the intellectual elite, <laughs> like mostly white. Mm-hmm. Um, And I want to say I put all these words in quotes, if you were seeing me, I'm definitely that person who puts air quotes around half the (laughs) things I say, because I'm trying to reference a vocabulary, (laughs) Mm -hmm. rather than um, say that I think agree with those words. Anyway,
0: that is something I relate to that on a personal level of just I always find myself being like, someone will mention something to me. And I'll be like, yeah, I know the case against that this is it. And then they'll be like, yeah, how could you disagree with me? And I'm like, no, I'm not like, I'm not like necessarily outright disagreeing with you. I'm just kind of like contextualizing the argument that you're making. Like, like, like and I, I, I don't know what that is, but anyway, I just, I thought I always find that like really interesting of just, I don't know. I don't really know where I was going with that. I just, I just thought that was funny.
2: I do that same thing. It makes my friends bonkers sometimes mm-hmm. because I want to know like all possible explanations, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like before I weigh in. Mm-hmm. So they're like, can't you just be, can't you just agree with me right now? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, what am Does I agreeing to? What are, what are <laughs> yeah. In that sense, you know, like it's the joke at Free Street, you know, that I'm a robot <laughs> because I'm always like, I want all the information first. Um, and it's actually not true. I freak out all the time. I'm just really good at catching myself quickly. Like, anytime I feel furious, I'm like, let me stop and make sure I have the information. Um, and then I can be furious with a good plan.
0: Well, so I want to um, I wanna just ask, basically, you know, we do find ourselves in this interesting time of, uh. of art being uh, pushed into this kind of, like, need to be flexible space and and what i also think is that um just this whole conversation we've been so much about talking about what it means to be marginalized in making art Um, and i just think generally like i think that there's so much to be said about there's just so much to be said about all this all this and I, i guess what i'm really wanting to ask is you know when you're thinking about the art maker in this city now um what do you you know as an academic and as a person who's you know worked successfully in this field for as long as you have like as cliche as it is like what advice do you have like what do you think will keep arts what do you think will keep what you love the most about arts going through this time and going even out of the pandemic as we continue to you know, work against what it means, what the institutional uh, forces are, are working with.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, something I've been seeing since the very beginning of this, you know, like on the day that we told all of our students at, at the theater school, that DePaul, that we were sending them home, you know, that we're not gonna, that we're moving online. Is that we just have to keep believing that if our work mattered yesterday, it still matters today and it still matters tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But I think and I think that the opportunity this has afforded all of us is to ask, well, what is it about our work that we think matters? And I know at Free Street, you know, like one of the things I love about what's happening right now is people have been incredibly generous about putting things online, about sharing stuff that used to be behind a paywall or not available at all, just in people's private archives. Like, um, people are recording, you know, like, w- workshops to share with each other. And there's a million Facebook groups where people are jumping on to share resources. And I appreciate that. At Free Street, we've actually taken a slightly different approach, which is to just breathe for a minute. Yeah. And think about, like, what pieces of our work are most important to us in terms of continuing to do that. Um, And how do we not just become noise? And I'm not saying all of that stuff is noise. But I felt, even after a week, so overwhelmed by all the things I could do online. Um, And actually, what I wanted to do was, like, curl up in a little ball and breathe. (laughs) You know, like, I was, like, not ready to be, like, watching 40 plays. Um, And so... Something I'm trying to figure out is like the reality is like the digital the digital space is not an equitable space any more than our live institutional spaces are, and so what does it mean to move into a format that not everybody has access to, um, but also maybe more people have access to than were coming to see a play before? You know, there's the, so many complicated questions about equity that I'm just starting to think through and figure out. But I've also had to just stop and think, like, what do I think theater is? (laughs) You know, like, if we're online, like, what still makes something theatrical? And I think I'm just at the beginning of trying to articulate this, which is that what's special to me about theater is that it's made for an audience that's right there, like, the specific actual people who are right there. And that's different than cinema or television or something that's been pre-recorded that kind of goes with or without the people who have tuned in to watch. And so I'm so curious to see how we'll shape ways of making digitally that acknowledge each other Mm -hmm. and that invite each other to change what's gonna happen. You know, like what's great about the theater is like we all have to hope that nobody in the audience like rushes the stage and tackles us, they could. And that would change, you know, we're just sort of hoping it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. You know, that liveness um, has to do a little bit of like welcoming the audience to be present with us. Um, And so I'm just like, I don't have a good answer to what that will look like Um, right before all of this happened. um, So I'm the co-author of a book um, called Ensemble Made Chicago, which documents the ensemble co-creative practice of 15 companies in Chicago. And the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events had commissioned us to put together this free masterclass series where anyone could come and take classes on co-creative performance with people from the book. And I was so excited. And literally, we launched the Monday before the stay at home order. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, um, and so we've been having so many questions like, are we moving this online? how do we continue to pay our artists? The money is allocated. I've already been paid. Chloe, Johnston, my co-authors, already been paid. We feel real obligation to use these taxpayer dollars productively. You know, Mm -hmm. like, how do we still make something for the city to expand storytelling skills? I'm just just not convinced that it should happen online rather than, like, block-to-block engagements or sending paper airplanes over each other's. Um fences, you know. <laughs> like, are there other? I would be so excited to be sitting in my, you know, you know, front yard, and suddenly I get a paper airplane with like instructions to make something beautiful. If I want, that would be cool. That would be cooler than logging onto a website to find it. So, I'm just trying to figure it out. Um, I haven't got any good answers yet.
1: There's something that's <laughs> to me that's so clinical about this, like wave of online learning. It it all seems very like activities that would be fun and lighthearted are all of a sudden very instructive. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that it's while like, you know, the the out the companies and the and the artists and the makers and who are who are, you know, creating online content and who are like doing their best to like to adjust to this new format, like, it's incredible what everyone has been able to do, but I agree, I agree with you that, like, you know, maybe everything shouldn't go online.
0: Well, I love, so, Maureen's birthday was actually just a few days ago. Um,
1: Happy birthday! uh, Thank you! (laughs) uh,
0: And the funniest thing was, it was this thing of, you know, how do we get that feeling of, um you know, like community and like togetherness. And, um, our friends actually surprised her with like a big chalk drawing that they took, they like did shifts to like like, (laughs) outside of our apartment window. And so it's that thing of, you know, figuring out like creativity abounds past, you know, the technology that we have, you know, and, and, that i yeah i mean it's it'll be interesting to kind of see how that all continues you know
2: i had some friends yesterday like not yesterday over the weekend they just texted me they're like you want to watch a magic show right now mm-hmm. i was like okay and they were driving around to their friends' houses doing magic tricks on the sidewalk. <laughs> I was like, uh, this is the most exciting thing that happened to me all day. <laughs> awesome. Like, And they had their masks on and they had a little right. portable speaker and the magic tricks are so ludicrous, yeah. you know? Like they were, these people are not magicians. They mm-hmm. had just taught themselves some magic tricks and then they were like, let me go show my friends. And I was like, you guys are the best people on the planet to me right now. <laughs> like, I love you.
1: The creativity <laughs> that people have taken of just like, cause with that chalk drawing, like basically then what happened is that like the chalk drawing was revealed to me. And then people just like sat on my windowsill. Cause we're in a ground level apartment, sat on my windowsill and talked to me while like drinking a beer. Yeah. And just, like, and took turns just like sitting and chatting and like, you know, we later that night had a, had a, you know, a group call and it was also very fun. But like the thing that I'm like absolutely treasuring is just like the ability to, like, I'm like leaning awkwardly against my windowsill and they're like crouched on the sidewalk and we're just like shouting at each other through a window. And it was like, so what I needed.
0: Yeah. That, that is something that you can't replace and and will be cherished after all this is over.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, because it's
2: live and it's for you and it's really life affirming. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's I think that the sometimes the internet feels like it will happen with or without us mm-hmm. and that was something made so specifically and specially for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that I think that you know, as with the magic show, as with the chalk drawing, I think that like I give a lot of credit to the artists and the people who are staying offline and being like what we're, you know, while we may do something, it doesn't have to be everything online. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, it's weird. And it's a weird balancing act.
2: Yeah. Like one of the things we've been trying to figure out at free street is that we had a show scheduled to open um, in the first week of May and it was our youth made show um, or one of our youth-made shows. And, you know, like, we're obviously not gonna like, we we're, our commitment is to keep working with these brilliant young artists, no matter what. And so like, what does that work look like? Um, and how do we share? Uh, because their work is not just artistic, but it's also research. They have spent a year researching um, trash and waste. The show is called Wasted. And you know, we think it's really important to do, like, empathetic and fun storytelling around, like, who is disposable and what is disposable in our city, you know, like, that still matters to us. So it's been interesting to play with, like, what that format's going to be, yeah. um, you know, and, like, it will be digital in some ways, but how do we still make it feel like Free Street, you know, like, how does it still feel like an invitation? And, um, but I actually don't know that we'll do um, anything but these shows online. Um, because I just think like I'd rather organize like everyone on a block to come out you know and be socially distanced obviously Mm -hmm. and like play a theater game and go back inside than like (laughs) put myself doing a monologue on the internet and no shade to people who are doing that you know I think everybody you know is finding their community you know like who needs what they're offering and what do they need to offer to feel important and all of that matters. So I'm not trying to belittle it, but for me, I'm like, eh, (laughs) like (laughs) what I'm missing is creating space for each other, not just, Hey, listen to me, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 Well, so I think, I don't know how, I don't have my regular timer on this, but I think we have a few minutes left. Um, So the last thing we do with all of our guests is a one minute plug for anything they have upcoming. Sometimes it's very obvious, like letting folks know uh, how they can learn more about a theater company that they helped run, if that were a thing. In fact, like we didn't get to talk about it at all, but um, your, the recent documentary for Free Street just came out.
2: Um, Yeah, free online, obviously. (laughs)
0: Um, but otherwise, uh, we love also hearing, uh, shout outs to other folks that you think are doing dope work, um, or any media that you're consuming otherwise, uh, music, TV shows, music, things like that.
2: Yeah. So I'll run through a quick list. Um, uh, if you're interested in Free Street, we are at freestreet.org and there's all kinds of good stuff on there. Um, including our most recent documentary, but also a documentary from 1972 narrated by Studs Terkel, which is like the thing I watch when I'm depressed because it's (laughs) like, so whatever your stereotype about like late sixties, early seventies theater, that is free street is it. And I love it. Um, awesome. And then if you're interested in me, um, I am at Koyapaz.com. I'm at pass at everything. Send me an email. Koyapaz at anything will get to me. Um, <laughs> and if you want to read about co-created work, like I said, I am the co-author of this book called Ensemble Made Chicago with Chloe Johnston, who's a neo-futurist. And that book um, profiles companies, but it also includes, over 50 like do-it-yourself activities like we really wanted to create a book that gave people the tools to make their own performance Mm -hmm. and then what i'm loving so much i think is such an important resource resource is this podcast called um movement work um or movement work or moment work it's um kelly hayes um who is an amazing um activist and she just did um, had a special guest on her podcast, um, Tanuja um, Jagannath who works at Free Street and is mm-hmm. also a really brilliant activist and dramaturg and playwright. Um, just talking about kind of healing and taking care of yourself right now, and I just think we really need that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've interviewed Tanuja a couple times with their um, their work with uh, prop theater.
2: Yes, yeah, so she is like talk about a light among lights. Mm-hmm. She really is just like, and, and then Kelly Hayes is the person I, you know, like, you know, some people have like, what would Jesus do? Um, <laughs> like, I'm like, what would Kelly Hayes do? You know, <laughs> she's like very radical, very hardcore, but also very loving and kind. Um, she's with the lifted voices collective. And, you know, like she just is like no nonsense. Like, here's how we need to organize and we need to organize with love, but also with, um, like a real sense of rigor and i just find it really inspirational
0: well thank you so much for being on the show
2: thank you for having me it was so nice talking to you and i i hope you stay well (laughs) if you have more
1: visitors to your window Yeah. yeah.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I've been Daniel Johansson.
1: I continue to be Maureen Smith. If you want to keep up with what we are up to, there are so many ways you can do that. The first is you head to our website, scopymag.com. We post all of our articles and podcasts there. It's a good time. You can also find us on social media. Our Facebook page is Scopy Magazine. We also have a Facebook group, called sounding board that we love and adore it is the home for all things astrology and politics so check it out we're also on instagram and twitter and tumblr under scoppy mag also you can find the podcast wherever you enjoy listening to it under Scopy radio those places being apple podcasts spotify radio public google play etc
0: and if you want to support the work that we do Uh, you can head to scopymag.com slash subscribe. That's the most important place for you to head. That's where uh, where you can sign up for a subscription to receive every post we make directly to your inbox. You know, the social media feeds aren't super kind to our content, and we want to make sure that you get the information that you want first. You can also support us by heading over to our merch store that you can find on the website. Or, if you are a business or a local entity that wants to advertise with us, you can reach out to us at scopymag at gmail.com. So, please, give a little, give a lot, and if you can't give, then listen, participate, and share.
1: Cool. Thanks so much for listening. Go out and make something.
0: Yep.